Well, good morning. The sermon text, as was mentioned, is Colossians 4, verses 2 through 6. So if you have your Bibles, you can open up there or in your bulletin. Colossians 4, 2 through 6. The necessity of prayer. The necessity of prayer. Let's bow our heads together and pray before we begin. Father in heaven, it is completely up to you that this worship service, that this sermon, that our prayers uh, are efficacious. Apart from you, they would be ineffectual. And so we ask you, Lord, uh, that as this sermon goes forth, uh, that we would have ears to hear and that you would bless your word, uh, which uh, will never return to you void. And we believe that, Lord, and expect you to do what you have promised. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. What makes a great athlete? What makes a great athlete? Uh, surely, at least in part, we can say genetics. Uh, but we probably have all heard or, or no, have known someone personally, that kid who had all the talent in the world, but he squandered it. Right? So putting genetics to the side, what makes a great athlete? Dedication to the craft. Dedication to the craft. Another way to put it is that great athletes don't just love the trophy, but they love the process. The process that got them to the trophy. In general, they love to put in the work. They love to put in the work, day in and day out. Surely there are times, maybe when they were younger, when they struggled to love the process. Certainly, uh, there are days uh, which that struggle, maybe even in the present, uh, where that's a struggle. But in general, they love the process. Bobby Knight, you may have heard that name, a famous college basketball coach, uh, said this, Your biggest opponent isn't the other guy. It's human nature. Your biggest opponent isn't the other guy. It's human nature. And this is why loving the process and a dedication to the craft is so necessary for a good or great athlete. Athletes get in their own way sometimes if they're not in love with the process. And they get in their own way more than opponents get in their way often. And so it is with us Christians. We so often forget all the snares that lie in our way in the Christian life. We often think becoming a Christian is like getting a Costco card or something. But Scripture compares the faith, as we just sung, to joining an army or being a high-level athlete. Paul makes that comparison. Or being a farmer. Hard work. Not joining a country club. What we learn in our passage this morning is that dedication to prayer is necessary for the Christian life. The same way dedication to soccer practice, my son's favorite sport, one of my son's favorite sports, is necessary to being a good soccer player. And so we will see that prayer is essential to faithfulness, and therefore we must pray. Our, our outline this morning is simple. In verse 2, we will see a principle of prayer. In verses 3 and 4, a request for prayer, and then an effect of prayer in verses 5 through 6. A principle of prayer, a request, 
for prayer and an effect of prayer. And so let's first draw our attention to verse 2 as Paul begins preaching or writing on prayer. The apostle thus far in Colossians has thoroughly argued for the supremacy of Christ over all things. And because of this magnificent gospel of our Lord, Paul now exhorts the church to put off the flesh and to put on Christ. To not live in the old way, but to live in the new way. Following our Lord, walking in Him. And this is why he commands prayer here. And I'll just mention here quickly that if you are a bit weary about a sermon which commands you to pray, is that what the sermon, that's what the sermon is. It's commanding you to pray. Uh, Let me remind you that the Apostle Paul, the one who has spoken so clearly on justification, being by faith and faith alone, not of anything that you can do or have done, not of any works, he is the very one who has commanded you to pray in Colossians 4.2 and elsewhere many times in the New Testament. This is a biblical command all over the Bible. God has told His people to pray over and over again, either by explicit command or by example. But why? Why is it so prevalent? Why does God say it so many times in the Bible? Why is it so vital? Why does Paul say, be diligent in prayer or continue steadfastly in prayer? It's a strong phrase. Three, three things here. Three things. First, because we have free access to God as a gracious gift. So first, because we have free access to God as a gracious gift. You see, through Christ, by the Spirit, we can come freely to the throne of grace because He is our marvelous High Priest who has reconciled us to God and always lives to make intercession for those who have drawn near. And this is in part what it means to pray in Jesus' name in the first place. We pray in His name not only because He reconciled us to God and we are in Christ, but also that through His name we are encouraged and drawn to pray with confidence and boldness, knowing that He stands before the Father, always making intercession for us. And so we are commanded to pray because prayer is a wonderful privilege that God has given us. We have free access to Him in Christ by the Spirit. Secondly, we are commanded to pray because prayer changes things. Douglas Kelly, a pastor theologian, In his book, If God Already Knows, Why Pray? A good question, great title. He rightly points out that prayer doesn't change God. Don't hear that wrong. Prayer doesn't change God, but it does change things. Now, what does that mean? What in the world does that mean? Surely our prayer does not change the immutable, impassable God. In other words, of course... That since God never changes, since He is never tossed to and fro by what His creatures do, our prayers don't change the mind of the immovable almighty rock that is our God. However, prayer, surely, in the Bible, changes things. How does that work? The unchangeable God ordained 
before the foundation of the world that the prayers of his people would be a part of the story. I'll say it again. The unchangeable God ordained before the foundation of the world that the prayers of his people would be a part of the story. To say it another way, God uses his people's prayers as a means to accomplish his purposes in history. So prayer changes things. Furthermore, people ask the question all the time, that very question in the title of the book, if God already knows why pray, but notice that the question itself acknowledges that God is all-knowing and all-powerful. And therefore, it's as if the questioner is answering the question. It's as if he's saying, God already knows all things. He's completely almighty and all-powerful, and he commands me to pray, but I still don't understand why I should pray. You see, the question itself already gives part of the answer. It becomes evident if you say the question as a statement. God knows, so pray. In other words, God knows what he is doing. He knows what he is commanding. He knows the beginning from the end. He is the all-wise and all-knowing God, and he says to pray. Certainly, that's a starting point. Certainly, that at least is enough reason to pray and not to question him. So we are commanded to pray because we have free access to God, because prayer changes things, although it does not change God. And also, thirdly, because prayer changes us. In prayer, we apprehend the promises of God. In prayer, we are reminded of the love of our Heavenly Father who keeps us in His grace and guides us when we are perplexed, as the old hymn says. This is our marvelous uh, Lord. Prayer changes us. Our God in prayer comforts our spirits so that we uh, know that we are immovable, even in the tribulations and trials of life. Prayer also changes us by reminding us of our creatureliness. One writer defines prayer as helplessness. I think that's good. Helplessness. When we pray, we are reminded of our utter dependence upon God. It humbles us, it frees us from pride, it aids our wills in submission to God. So prayer changes us, it changes things, not God. And also, we should pray because we have free access to God. And so we are so often to called, uh, called to pray in Scripture for these reasons. But note that in our text... Uh, God, through the Apostle Paul, doesn't just command us to pray, uh, but he also says, be watchful in prayer, verse 2. Be watchful in prayer and be filled with a thankful heart in prayer. And so he's given us principles of prayer. In your prayers, be watchful, be thankful. So let's first consider uh, watchfulness. What does this mean? Think of a soldier on a watchtower. You see, the Christian life can be compared, as I mentioned, to a war. This is why we are told to put on the armor of God. When we pray, it's as if God is placing us on a watchtower. He's placing us on a watchtower, which enables us to see our enemies clearly. Prayer, in part at least, is warfare. Prayer is spiritual warfare. Prayer is dangerous 
to evil. It's dangerous to evil. Evil in your heart and evil in the world. This also means that when we pray, we should pray against evil. Asking God to help us see clearly the enemies that are at our gates. I remember my first pastor uh, my first, at my first PCA church. Um, the first meeting I ever had with him, I was telling him I was really struggling sharing the gospel. I was very afraid to share the gospel with this uh, friend of mine. And he said, pray. He said, pray, prior, a lot. Because he said, prayer enables you to be dangerous to evil. To be dangerous to evil. So that gave me the confidence to go in and tell this uh, young man the gospel. Be dangerous to evil. This also means that when we uh, pray, uh, we should pray against evil. This is why a prayerless Christian is in danger, while a prayerful Christian is dangerous. A prayerless Christian is in danger, while a prayerful Christian is dangerous. Second, we are told to pray with thanksgiving. So be watchful in prayer, but also be filled with thanksgiving. Our hearts are to be grateful when we pray, you see. This principle of prayer helps with our attitudes. A thankful Christian is a happy Christian. A thankless Christian is a grumpy Christian. A thankful Christian is a happy Christian. A thankless Christian is a grumpy Christian. And by happy, I don't mean skipping around, picking up daisies. I don't mean an old definition. I mean an old definition of happy. I mean contentment, peace, joy, a flourishing human being. And this thankful, flourishing heart begins with prayer. Thanking God for the gospel, the benefits thereof, and all the blessings of this life and the one to come. In Deuteronomy 32, we learn about Israel's ingratitude, which caused them to forget the God who rescued them out of Egypt. They had no more thankfulness. And in Deuteronomy 32.15, it says this, But Jeshurun grew fat and kicked. You grew fat, stout, and sleek. Then he forsook God who made him and scoffed at the rock of his salvation. That is why it's important, one of the reasons it's important, to be thankful in prayer. Thankful prayer keeps us from forgetting God, who's the giver of all good gifts. Thankfulness is also a vital aspect of prayer because sometimes God answers no to our prayers. And thankfulness will keep us humble in submission to God and His will, even when prayers seem unanswered. So in prayer, be watchful. In prayer, be thankful for the God who enables you to see the enemies and avoid the bullets of the evil one. And He is the God who has given you every good thing that you have. And so be thankful in prayer. Have you ever heard of self-sabotage? Self-sabotage. If not, it's pretty self-explanatory. It's when a person sabotages themselves in an aspect of their life. Self-sabotage tends to happen when people are scared of failure. And with that fear of failure, they often procrastinate or maybe they quit uh, altogether. Often, you see, we self-sabotage ourselves with our lack of prayer. 
Often we don't pray because we don't have faith that God really answers or hears our prayers. And we then self-sabotage with our prayerlessness, you see. But God doesn't just promise to hear our prayers. He even hears His people's groanings. He even hears His people's groanings, and the Spirit interprets those groanings to God. He even answers those. You see, our God is a loving Father. He is the archetype of all true fatherhood, and great, even great earthly fatherly love finds its source in our Heavenly Father. So why do we so often doubt the care and kindness of our loving Father towards us? God sent His Son into the world to die in our place, in the place of us rebels who showed Him no regard. And you actually doubt that He hears your prayers. Prayerlessness is nothing short of self-sabotage. You're sabotaging the comfort of being close to your Heavenly Father. You're sabotaging your own joy. You're ensuring you will be in danger of committing more sins than you would have if you were prayerful. And sin is painful. Why would you want to risk that? I'm reminded of the parable that Jesus told in order to exhort the disciples to pray and never give up in Luke 18. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. I'm going to read this to you briefly. Luke 18. Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. He said, In a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared what people thought, and there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with, uh, with the plea, Grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused, but finally he said to himself, Even though I don't fear God or care what people think, yet because the, the widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice, so that she won't eventually come back uh, and attack me. And the Lord said, Listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice, and quickly. So Jesus, Jesus says, Pray and never give up. Pray and never give up. Keep praying. So the Apostle Paul warns us in our passage, don't let yourself get in your own way here. Similar to Jesus, Paul's saying, continue in prayer steadfastly. Pray and don't give up. See, prayerlessness is carelessness. And carelessness in a life which is so riddled with toils and snares is dangerous, and may I say even foolish. Sometimes when we are walking through the toils and snares of life, we avoid prayer. Sometimes we pray when things are going well, but when things get rough, we push prayer to the side. We push prayer to the side. You know, earlier I said that what makes a great athlete, what makes a great athlete is focused dedication to the craft, a watchfulness of the craft. Uh, but what also makes a great athlete is the ability to get back up after a loss and stay even keel. So continue steadfastly in prayer, even when things aren't going well. Even when prayer is a struggle, pray about your prayers. 
Lord, help me to pray. I'm struggling. Pray when life is rough. Continue even when it's difficult. And if you're tempted to stop praying when life is good, continue even when it is difficult. Because your prayerlessness will catch up to you. It will. As uh, it says in Numbers, your sin will find you out. And so will your prayerlessness. And so in verse 2, we are told to be steadfast and watchful prayer. And that prayer should be filled with gratitude. And so we have seen Paul's principles of prayer, and now he himself has a request for prayer in verses 3 and 4. So let's draw our attention there. It is here that the Apostle Paul, while exhorting the church at Colossae to pray, now by way of example, he shows them the utter necessity of prayer. To prove to them that prayer is necessary, he humbly asks them to pray for the apostles, the pastors, evangelists who are preaching the word. The implication in verses 3 and 4 is that prayer for God's aid in gospel proclamation is just as important as proclaiming it. The apostles, you see, who received direct revelation from God, who had the greatest authority in all the church, still needed the prayers of all of God's people. Because regardless of our role in the church, we are all one in Christ. And therefore, our prayers in the Spirit are equal before God. And so Paul asks the people to pray that a door for the Word is opened for two reasons. First, so that the mystery of Christ will be spoken. The mystery of Christ will be spoken. By saying the mystery of Christ, he's simply referring to the gospel of Jesus Christ. This word mystery in Paul commonly refers to something that was once hidden, uh, that has now been revealed and made clear. It does not re uh, refer to some sort of secret, uh, mystical knowledge. It's simply the amazing truth of the crucified incarnate God, his resurrection and his kingship, which was once not fully disclosed prior to the incarnation, but has now been disclosed and made clear to the world. And secondly, Paul asked the people to pray that a door for the word is opened so that the message will be made clear. In verse 4, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Paul himself asks for clarity in the way that he presented the gospel. Everything that we do, brothers and sisters, is utterly reliant upon the Spirit of God. The message will not be made clear. Doors will not be opened for the Word. Hearts will not be changed apart from God's Spirit. And that means that we must, as a church, continue steadfastly in prayer. Hold fast to God's promises that the Spirit will guide us into all truth and the Spirit will cause men to be born again. And take those promises back to God and seek His face, asking Him to do what He has said. God loves it when we ask Him to do what He said He was going to do. That is praying in accordance with His will. As it says in 1 John, if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of Him. And so, my friends, as Paul asked the Colossian church to pray for his ministry, 
we certainly here pray or ask you to pray for ours. You know, you can go a long time without changing the oil in your car. I know from experience. <laughs> you, can go a pretty, you can go a pretty long time. You can go pretty far past the date on that sticker on your windshield. Uh, but eventually, I haven't experienced this part. Uh, hopefully I never do. But eventually, guaranteed, something will go wrong. You see, a church and its leaders can go a while without praying. Things can seemingly be going well. But eventually, something will fall apart. Eventually, a gasket will be blown. Your prayers for our preaching are just as important as our preparation and our actual preaching. Your prayers for our teaching are just as important as the teaching. Your prayers for our session meetings are just as important as the session meeting itself. Your prayers for the BBS last week, for example, were just as important as the work uh, that we all put in. Your prayers are utterly vital for the health of the church and the spread of the gospel in this area that God has put us in. And so we must, like the Apostle Paul, understand the importance of prayer for everything that we do in this life, especially in the church. Paul needed their prayers. He needed their prayers. And we need each other's. And this is in part what it means to bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ, in Galatians 6.2. And so certainly we have seen the necessity of our prayers for ourselves and for others. And now let's draw our attention to verses 5 and 6, where we will see now an effect of prayer. Now to say this another way, here we will see how prayer affects a person. Some Bible translations will start a new paragraph and verse 5. I think verses 2 through 6 should be its own paragraph. Uh, some translations agree with me on that, so I'm not alone on this. Uh, but regardless, uh, they are not disconnected, unrelated subjects. Uh, this means that we must ask the question, how are they related? How are they related? How do they fit together? Prayer and a wise or godly Christian life are certainly connected. A wise or godly person will cease to be if prayerlessness takes hold. If we live a life of prayer, however, where we are being watchful, seeking God's face, or that we should be uh, forgiven and not led into temptation, or that we would be forgiven and not led into temptation, delivered from the evil one, and at the same time we are praying for the spread of the gospel, and that people would be saved and ministers and evangelists and missionaries would proclaim clearly uh, the message of Christ, then certainly how you treated your unbelieving neighbors would change. It would get better over time and be more and more sanctified. Clearly, that person would be growing in their love toward non-Christians. And the way they spoke would increase in graciousness because of their sweet communion with God in prayer. So let's consider what the Apostle says here. Two things. First, he says, walk in wisdom towards outsiders. Walk in wisdom. This word walk in Paul is probably his favorite word 
uh, when referring to how Christians should live. You encountered these terms, if you were here uh, recently, in Pastor John's uh, sermons uh, through the book of Romans. In Romans 6, for example, Paul refers to walking in newness of life, Romans 8, walking in according to the Spirit, and he will continue to use that verb to walk through the rest of the book of Romans, and throughout uh, almost all of his letters in the New Testament. So now here he says, walk in wisdom toward outsiders. If we remember that Christ has become to us wisdom from God, 1 Corinthians 1.30, as Paul says, and understand Christ was perfectly wise, living according to the cosmic order of creation, then we understand that Paul's exhortation is to walk as Christ would walk with outsiders. See, walking in wisdom is to live like Christ, treating others how he would treat them. Along with this, he says, make the best use of the time, which helps explain what it means to walk toward uh, walk in wisdom toward outsiders. Jesus, you see, never wasted a moment, did he? He never wasted a moment. He used every opportunity to please God, to love his neighbor, and to this we have been called. This could be translated woodenly as walk in wisdom toward outsiders, redeeming the time. I like that. Redeeming the time. And I hope you see here how prayer relates to this. How verses 2 through 4 relate to verses 5 and 6. So I don't know about you, but it's easy to live for myself. It's easy to forget my purpose. And instead of redeeming the time, it's easy to abuse the time to my own selfish gain, especially if I'm prayerless. If I'm prayerful, then redeeming the time becomes possible by the aid of the Spirit and the sweet communion I had with God that morning and throughout the day. Secondly, Paul says here, be gracious in the way you speak towards outsiders. <coughs> If grace is on the tip of every word, then it's difficult for sin to get in the way of clearly answering each person you come in contact with, someone who does not know Christ. And this is why he says, season your speech with salt. Season your speech with salt, and that will aid you in knowing how to answer. Think about it. If you are prayerless, if you are grumpy, if you are ungrateful uh, with speech that is careless and harsh, then will you be in the right place to properly answer a person with gospel truth? Or are you even in the right place to respond to a person with kindness in general? Probably not. And therefore, be careful that your life reflects the gospel that you believe. Walking in wisdom towards outsiders, and having speech that is gracious towards non-Christians especially. You know, all good chefs, I'm, I consider myself a foodie, all good chefs thoroughly season their food with salt. Salt brings the whole dish together. It brings the whole dish together. And this is what prayer does in the Christian life. Prayer helps our lives be whole and consistent 
It helps us live out what we profess. Prayer seasons our speech with salt. Prayer seasons our lives with salt. And therefore, because prayer or lack thereof has a positive or negative effect on every aspect of our lives, we must pray. It's the only conclusion we could come to. We must pray. We must realize the widespread negative effects of prayerlessness. It negatively, uh, negatively affects your spiritual growth, your church, and your witness. You see, the Christian life, unlike athletics, is not dedication to a craft, but to a person, Jesus Christ. How much more, then, should we be devoted to the sweet communion we are offered by God? In prayer. Our Lord prayed, He taught us to pray, and He told us to pray. Is there any good reason to not pray? See, prayer is not a chore. It's not a chore, it's a gift. It's a sweet gift, it's a blessing, it's a privilege that as those who are in Christ, we have free access to the throne of grace where we can find help and grace, or grace to help, in time of need, as we humbly commune with our Father in heaven. So, brothers and sisters, continue steadfastly in prayer. I will leave you with the words, one of my favorite hymns, and the word suit in this first line refers to a petition. Come, my soul, thy suit prepare. Jesus loves to answer prayer. He himself has bid thee pray. Rise and ask without delay. Thou art coming to a king. Large petitions with thee bring. For his grace and power are such none can ever ask too much. Let's pray. Holy Father in heaven, we ask you, Lord, to help us as a body to grow in prayer, to continue steadfastly in prayer. Help us, Lord, to pray. And Lord, we pray that as we go forth from here, that you would help us this week to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Bless uh, this message and this Lord's Day of rest uh, for God's people. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.